He is risen. Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. Our enemy has been defeated. Our sins have been paid for. We no longer have to fear death because our hope is in the resurrection, in our resurrected Savior. If you have your Bible, it says turn to John. We're going to be in John 11. And before we get into the Word, let, let me pray for us and let me pray for me as I can present the Word to you in a way that you can understand. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. God, today is a big deal not because there's more people here. It is a big deal because today we celebrate that your Son is alive. He truly is the resurrection and the life. And our sins have truly been paid for and your wrath have truly been satisfied. And the atoning work on the cross is finished. And our enemy's sin, Satan, and death has been defeated. What a glorious Sunday. And Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, can you speak to us? Can you open up our eyes, our ears, and our hearts? Can you help us to understand? Can you help us to be overwhelmed by your word? Can you help us to stop looking to ourselves and putting our hope in ourselves and our confidence in ourselves, but help us to put our hope and our confidence in you and rest in you. Help us to bring our sins to your feet, knowing that you have paid for it in full. Lord, may we walk out of here in awe of you. May we walk out of here saying, what a wonderful Savior. And Lord, for those who do not know you, for those who are far away from you, who are still dead in their sins, can you save them? Can you convict them? Can your words become truth to them? Can it pierce into their hearts? Lord, may your name be glorified, not only by the way you're being praised, but also in the way you are revealing yourself. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to be in John as we're continuing our series through the book of John. And what we've been talking about, if you're new here, we we need to be reminded of who wrote this text. And so John is the one who wrote the gospel of John. And what he's trying to show us, what he's trying to show his readers is that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And the way he does it is by showing us how Jesus revealed his glory, but also how Jesus received glory from the Father, something we're now going to start seeing in our text. And his ultimate purpose is to invite you in to believe so that you may have life in his name. Now, in chapter 10, the people in Jerusalem wanted to arrest him and kill Jesus for blasphemy. Yet Jesus was able to escape because his time had not yet come. But what calls Jesus close to Jerusalem again, where he possibly could be arrested and killed, was the appeal of his dear friends, Martha and Mary, whose brother Lazarus was ill, the one that Jesus loved. And when Jesus heard the news, he delayed two more days, and in their pain, in their suffering, and in their sorrow, filled with confusion, Jesus reveals himself as the resurrection in the life. And, and so what we need to do as we deal with the story is if Jesus truly loved these people when he received the news, why did he delay two days? Wouldn't he immediately, if he hears this news, to go and heal Lazarus? And then as Jesus shows up four days later, he declares himself to be the resurrection and the life. And so the question we got to ask ourselves is, what does it mean for Jesus to be the resurrection and the life? And then lastly, we're going to talk about how does this story give us a picture of the gospel? So let's look at John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. 
Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sister sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to the disciples, Let's go to Judea again. Now, right off the bat, as we read the text, like John shows us the relationship that existed between Jesus and this family. More than likely, uh, this family were disciples of Jesus. They might have not been one of the 12, but certainly they followed Jesus, which means wherever he went, wherever he went, they went. So they saw his miracles. They sat under his teaching. And notice when Martha and Mary sent a messenger, they didn't appeal to Jesus because of their love for Jesus, but rather they appealed to Jesus for Jesus' love for them. And so we see this intimate relationship that exists between Jesus and this family. And surely if they sent a messenger to let him know that the one he loved is sick, surely he would immediately leave to go and heal him since he was such a close friend and so he was loved by Jesus. And when Jesus heard the news, look at what, what, what was said in verse 4. Look at verse 4 again. When Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. In other words, what Jesus does not mean is that the sickness is not fatal, but rather that the sickness will not ultimately end in death. For it will end in the resurrection from the dead, and all of that is for God's glory. But what we have to understand in this text, this phrase, for God's glory, does not mean so that God will be praised, but rather this phrase means so that God's glory will be revealed. And in this resurrection, as God's glory is being revealed, the glory of the Son of God is revealed as people are believing in Him. So in other words, the raising of Lazarus is going to provide an opportunity for God to reveal his glory, to reveal the glory of his son. And the express purpose of the father is that all should honor the son as they honor the father. Remember in our text uh, in in John, we, we said that how does John show us that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah by Jesus revealing his glory? And now we're going to start seeing in the text how Jesus is receiving glory from the Father. And this is the purpose of the story, is so that God could reveal himself, so that the Son of God can reveal all of his glory and power, and people will honor him by believing in him. But then what's also really interesting is that when Jesus heard the news, he stayed two more days. Now, it could easily be if you're an outsider or maybe you don't like Jesus, it's easy for us to read the text and even interpret it as Jesus being callous and cold-hearted to the family. And you're wondering, if he truly loved this family and cared for this family, wouldn't he leave everything and go and heal his friend Lazarus? However, John reminds us in verse 5 that no, Jesus is not cold. Jesus is not callous. But in verse 5, he tells us now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So the question is, if he genuinely loved them and cared for them, why would he delay two more days? Wouldn't he immediately come and remove the pain and the suffering from them and take all of their worries away? Why did Jesus delay? And I think there's two reasons for why Jesus delayed two more days. The first reason that we have to understand is remember that Jesus is not under his own directive. He's not under the directive of man, but under whose directive is he? He's under the directive of God the Father. 
He is walking in complete obedience to God the Father. He does what he sees his Father does. He says what he he hears his Father says. And this is very similar. Remember in, in the earlier parts of the Gospel of John when his brothers came up and said, hey, you should go to Jerusalem and show yourself. And Jesus, in a sense, says, yeah, you can do whatever you want to because you do not belong to God. But because I belong to God, I can only do what God tells me to do. And so this is the reason why he delays. He is still under the directive of his father. That's reason number one. Reason number two is that the two days delay was motivated by Jesus' love for this family. In other words, he delayed because he loved this family. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're like, how's that love? Because if you love them, you remove suffering from them. Well, let let me explain this for a little bit. How can Jesus delay, be motivated by the love for his family? Here's what we have to understand. Let's work out the timeline a little bit and then put it together. So the message that Lazarus was ill obviously was sent by a messenger, and that messenger had to travel from Jerusalem to where Jesus was, and that was a one-day trip. So hypothetically, if a messenger came and he delivered the message to Jesus, that's a one-day trip. And then for the messenger to go back or Jesus to go immediately back, that will be another day trip. And if Jesus delayed two more days, that would be considered a four-day trip as we see in verse 17. However, what we have to understand is because Jesus is God, he is omniscient, he knew that by the time the messenger arrived, Lazarus has already died. So in other words, this two-day delay did not cause the death of Lazarus because Lazarus was already dead. You're like, how do you know it? Because in the next part, which you need to come back next week as we read the rest of the story, is that Lazarus was already in the tomb. And it took about three days to prepare the body. And there, as they put him in the tomb, the sister even says he stinks because he's been dead for so long. Decay has already set in. And so the reason for this delay is that Jesus is refusing to be manipulated by people and he would only await his father's timing. But above all, this delay ensured that Lazarus has been dead for long enough that no one would mistake this miracle as a resuscitation. In other words, this miracle that Jesus would perform would ultimately confirm the faith of his disciples and the faith of his friends, the ones he loved. And it will be displayed in such a dramatic power that they were, if they were lacking in any faith, it would have, in a sense, strengthened their faith. So what we have to understand is the reason why this was a loving thing. In our culture, a loving thing is removing the suffering and the obstacles from people's lives. But that's not how God operates. The loving thing is not to remove the suffering, but the loving thing is to strengthen the faith in the midst of the suffering. And so this is what Jesus is doing. The most loving thing to do for this family is to strengthen their faith in the midst of this suffering. Now, it's easy for us to say, okay, this is the loving thing, but Jesus doesn't really care about human suffering. That's why he doesn't really remove suffering from us. He strengthens faith in the midst of suffering. He doesn't really care about human suffering. But this is not what the story tells us. Because if you read on in verse 35, after Jesus spoke to Martha and to Mary, right before he's in the tomb, here's a Bible verse you can memorize within a second. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. We read that Jesus did what? Jesus wept. Think about this. He knew what he was going to do. He knew the end results but why did he weep? He saw their suffering. He saw their pain. And he wept in the midst of their pain and in their sorrow. 
So what we have to understand is that we can trust that Jesus is good and gracious and that he will do what is best for us. And sometimes delays are part of his plan, but we have to understand that delays do not dissolve his plan. He calls us to wait because he loves us. In other words, he calls us in the midst of suffering and sorrow and pain to wait and to trust in him and it's for our good because it's... It strengthens our faith because what it forces us to do is what? It forces us to trust God. It forces us to put our hope in God and our confidence in God in the midst of this suffering. And this is what's going on in this story. He delays two more days. And we're going to see that's going to be a substantial contribution in strengthening the faith of his disciples and also the faith of this family. So Jesus invites the disciples to join him, and and look how they responded in verse 8. It says this, Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you, and you're going there again? Aren't there 12 hours in a day, Jesus answered? If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. He said this, and then he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Notice verse 15, highlight verse 15 if you like taking um, notes in your Bible. I am glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may do what? So that you may believe, but let's go to him. Then Thomas called twins, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too so that we may die with him. Now, What we see happening in the text is the disciples are recognizing that the opposition against Jesus is becoming stronger and stronger and becoming so great that now they don't want Jesus to go back to Jerusalem because if he does, what's going to happen? He will probably end up getting arrested and killed and they might die with him. And then Jesus talks about in the last couple verses all these weird phrases of, of there's only 12 hours in the day and walking during the day and don't walk in the night. And basically what Jesus is saying in a sense is that he's insisting that as long as they are with him and as long as he is doing the Father's work, they are safe. And the time will soon come when you will be unable to work. Why? Because Jesus will be arrested, which means they need to continue to work because Jesus, who is the light of the world as they're walking in the light, need to continue to work. But when darkness comes, in other words, when Jesus is arrested, all work will cease. So in other words, what Jesus is alluding to is that his ministry is coming to an end. But we can't stop before the ministry continues, until the ministry ends. We need to continue. They need to continue in finishing the ministry that he has started. And since the disciples really did not understand what Jesus was talking about, confusion about sleeping, natural, he finally just told them, look, he's dead. But again, let's look at verse 15 because verse 15 gives us a serious clue of what the story is all about. I am glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe. And we've already read in verse 4 that we find out that the sickness will not end in death, but it's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. In other words, again, he shows us the purpose of Lazarus' death and resurrection. It's for Jesus to receive glory from the Father and his disciples and his family to do what? They honor him by believing in him. Shows us why did Jesus delay? Why is Jesus going to raise Lazarus from the dead? So that his glory will be revealed and people will believe in him. 
And obviously, the disciples are afraid of death, but trusting Jesus, they went on ahead. Let's keep reading and see what happens as Jesus is now making his way to this family. Verse 17 says this, When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb. How many days? Four days. So remember the timeline. The messenger took a day. Jesus delayed two more days. And then another day back. So before the messenger possibly even came, Lazarus was already dead. It wasn't Jesus' fault that Lazarus died. He's already been dead for four days which means all hope is lost. There's no hope of resuscitating or reviving him. He is decaying and he is stinking. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. What is John showing us? Jesus is close to the danger zone. Jesus is risking his life because when the Jews hear that Jesus is close to Jerusalem, what they're going to do? They're going to want to arrest him, seize him so that they could kill him. Verse 19 says this, Many of the Jews had come to Martha and men and Mary to comfort them about their brother. And as soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. So what's happening is Lazarus is dead for four days. He's placed in the tomb. The mourners had come. Death is there. All hope of our brother being healed, is lost. Mary runs out to meet Jesus. You can imagine how she must have felt. If you've ever lost somebody you've loved, you can imagine that pain and that sorrow. She sent a messenger to Jesus in hopes that Jesus would come and prevent her brother from dying and heal her brother. She has seen him perform countless of miracles and healed countless of people. It would take nothing to heal her brother. But it didn't happen. He ended up dying. So you can imagine the grief the sorrow, the pain, the confusion, even the questions swirling around in her head. Why did Jesus allow this to happen? If he genuinely loved us, why would he allow us to experience this pain and this suffering? If he could heal everybody else, why could he not heal my brother? And look at what she said in verse 21. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So you can imagine the pain that she's feeling. And it's easy for us to read verse 21 and we see it in a sense of a rebuke. But we have to see is this is not a rebuke. She's not saying you could have prevented this death. I'm angry at you. But rather it is a statement full of grief and of faith. Grief that her brother had died, that Jesus could have prevented it, but it didn't. But then she also displays faith. Look at the second part of what she says in verse 21, verse 22, sorry. Yet even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. In other words, even though she's filled with grief, her head is full of questions and confusion. She still has not lost her confidence in Jesus. She still believes that because Jesus enjoys such a close intimacy with God, that he is from God, the Son of God, that he is yielding an unprecedented fruitfulness in his prayer. In other words, whatever he asks the Father, the Father will do. She had heard him ask. She had seen him do. She has sat under his teaching. So let's stop here a little bit and think about this. Martha's heart was full of grief and questions and confusion, but also full of faith. 
for many of us, we can kind of relate to Martha's words in verse 21. Look at, look, look at these words in verse 21 again. Lord, if you had been here. In other words, what we can do is we can relate to these words. Lord, if you only had fill in the blank. How often do we ask this question? How often do we have this phrase in our hearts? And yet as this phrase is kind of swirling in our minds and in our hearts, we know in a sense that God is all-powerful. We know that he can take away our heartache, and we know that he can remove our suffering and our pain from us. And sometimes we wonder, why does he not do it? It would just be so much easier for him to remove sin completely, to defeat and destroy it in one sitting. Why does he defeat it but not completely destroy it? And yet, we ask this question, Lord, if you, if you only had, knowing that he is powerful, wondering why does he not remove our pain and our suffering, and yet the Bible gives us a space to lament. There's actually a book in the Bible called Lamentations. You might want to read it. It's a whole book dedicated to crying and weeping there's a whole book the psalms of faithful men and women that have gone before us in pain and in suffering asking the lord why and yet in their questions they're rooted firmly in the face saying but i know that you are good like david is ministering to his own soul he says oh soul why are you so weary i know this is hard i know you're struggling but remember who god is the Bible tells us that we can come with our questions. We can bring and lay our burdens at his feet. 1 Peter 5, 7 is commanding us to take all of our anxieties and cast it on the Lord. Jesus himself, even in Matthew 11, verse 28, invites us to come to him. He says, all of you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, for I'm lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden his light what is he doing he's inviting you in to come to him he's not promising to remove your pain and your suffering but in the midst of your pain and suffering he's inviting you in to come and rest in him and trust in him and put your confidence in him and this is what martha is doing in her question and as Martha came to Jesus with a heart full of grief, full of questions and faith, look at how Jesus responded in verse 23. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. See, at one level... Jesus' words, your brother will rise again, could be taken as no more as a religious attempt to provide comfort for her, drawing her attention to the last days, to the resurrection of the dead. Very similar to what we're saying when somebody has died and we try to comfort a family member. What, what do we say? He's in a better place. Knowing that the resurrection will take place, that her brother will be restored to a resurrected uh, bodily life. And the way that Martha understood the words of Jesus was in that way. And this is what she says, why she says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day, as she is affirming what Jesus believes and what the Jews believed in the resurrection of the last day. But in another sense... At another level, when Jesus said it, he didn't just give a religious statement to bring her comfort, but rather he also is promising her an immediate resurrection for Lazarus. And we can see that point escapes Martha. And she will realize what Jesus means later on in the story. But look at what Jesus responded in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you 
believe this. In other words, what Jesus is doing, he's in a sense saying, Martha, I'm not trying to comfort you in some religious statement. I'm trying to show you what this is all about. And he makes a powerful declaration declaring to be the resurrection and the life. In other words, he is concerned as to divert her, her focus from some abstract belief in what it takes place on the last day to a personalized belief in him that he alone can provide. In other words, the promise and the comfort and the hope for the weeping and the mourning were not found in anything else but rather in Jesus and in Jesus alone. The resurrection and the life is not something that Jesus simply gives. It's not something that he just simply does, but rather it is who he is. It's very similar to the bread of life. Yes, he gives us bread from heaven, but he is the bread of heaven. In other words, he is giving us himself. He gives us resurrection, eternal life. Because he is the resurrection and eternal life. Because he is giving us himself. And so what does it mean that he is the resurrection and the life? It means he is the giver and the sustainer of life. He is life itself and there is no life apart from him. And when death and sorrow abound in our broken world, Jesus came to defeat death, to restore the sorrow into joy by giving life. And when sorrow and suffering leaves us confused with questions, Jesus calls us to himself, to rest in him, to trust in him, to put our hope in him and our confidence in him because he is the resurrection and the life. But one of the things that I think is significant in this text as not only does Jesus make this powerful declaration of who he is, but then he turns towards Martha in her pain and in her confusion, and he asks her a question. What does he say? Do you believe this? He, he's not asking if she believes some statement of faith, but does she trust that Jesus is the resurrection in the, in the life? In her grieved heart, does she still trust Jesus as the only person who can grant eternal life and the promised transformation of the resurrection? Like it is easy to trust Jesus when life is good. It's easy to put our hope and our confidence in him where we have no pain and suffering. But in her pain and her suffering, he makes this powerful declaration saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Is your hope and your trust and your confidence still in me despite your suffering, your sorrow, and your pain? Look at how she responded in verse 27 and then we'll end. Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Martha's yes, Lord, introduces more than just a confession of the point Jesus had made, but rather her yes is a personal confidence as Jesus, as the Messiah and the Son of God. In other words, in her mind, it's not just yes, but rather, she replies saying, if you are the resurrection and the life, that means you must be the one that comes from God, the promised Messiah. You are the Son of God. In other words, what she has, her faith has a rich mixture of personal trust and confidence that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God and the one who has come into the world. So, so let's stop here and talk a little bit about application. Really what we see in this story is, is a picture of the gospel. Let, let me show you the picture of the gospel in this story. This story begins with what? It begins with sickness that resulted in death, full of pain, suffering, and sorrow. The gospel means good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. 
But why is it good news? Because there is bad news. And so this story begins with bad news. It begins with Lazarus' sickness. It ends with his death. Martha and Mary are so distraught, overcome by grief, suffering, and pain. And yet the bad news is sorrow and death, suffering and pain is a result because of our rebellion against God. And when we rebelled against God, and when we put ourselves over and against God, telling God, you are not God, we are God. When we separate ourselves from God, the only thing apart from God is pain, suffering, and death. There is no way that any of us can escape pain, suffering, and death. That's just the reality of the world that we live in. Even the closest ones to Jesus, the ones that love Jesus, the ones that Jesus loved, what did they experience? They experienced pain, suffering, and death because that's the reality of our story. We've rebelled against God, and now we find ourselves living in a world full of pain, suffering, and death. And no matter how hard we try to create this utopia, this paradise, this better world for our children with better policies and politicians and countries and all these things, what do we always end up with? Pain, suffering, and death. No matter how hard you try to protect your children from pain, suffering, and death, guess what they are going to experience? Guess what all of us are going to experience or experiencing now? Pain, suffering, and death. In this story, Jesus could have prevented the death of Lazarus. He could have prevented the sorrow and the pain and the suffering of his sisters. But he didn't. He delayed for two more days. Why? So that God's glory will be revealed. So that the Son of God will be honored and people believe in him. Which leads us to our story. If we have rebelled against God and we find ourselves in a world full of pain, suffering, and death, the natural question is what? Why did God not stop it? Could not God not have prevented Adam and Eve from rebelling against him? Why has this been going on for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years? If he is so good, why does he continue to let this happen? And to make a really short answer for a really complex question. Yeah, God could have stopped it. Could have prevented it. But he didn't. Why? So that he could reveal his glory. By displaying his power over sin. By showing people mercy and grace when they rebelled against him. And revealing his love by rescuing us. If he removed the pain and the suffering, what would we not do? We would not trust in him. And what was the most loving thing for Jesus to do for this family? To allow this to happen so that they could trust him, put their faith in him. And then back in the story, as Jesus shows up, he claims to be the resurrection and the life. Later on in the Gospel of John, he's going to demonstrate that he is the resurrection and the life by dying, by laying down his life, but then not remaining dead, by taking it up again. And in that process, defeating sin, defeating Satan, defeating death by not remaining dead but alive. And in that process, what did Jesus do? 
Jesus rescued us from our rebellion against God that separated us from God by living a life we could not live and died a death we were supposed to die. Like, like think about this. Jesus did not remove your pain and your suffering and your sorrow. He took it upon himself. He did not remove your sin, but took your sin upon himself and, put to, and became sin for us and faced the judgment that we deserved. The wrath of God that was against us. And as he carried it upon himself, he was nailed to the cross. As he paid for it in full. And by his death, he paid the penalty that our sins deserve. But he did not remain dead. And by his resurrection, he provided the evidence that he is truly from God that that sacrifice was accepted by God. God's wrath was satisfied. And all the promises that he made of being the resurrection and the life is true because an enemy that remained undefeated was finally defeated now. And in his death and in his burial and in his resurrection, he promises life. Life for all who trust in him. Life who, for all who put their hope in him, who will be reconciled to God, who will be made new, and who will experience a resurrected life now. And lastly, as our story ends, Jesus claimed to be the resurrection and the life. But then he asked Martha a question. And what was that question? Do you believe this? And the question of the gospel is the same question that Jesus asked Martha. He's asking you, do you believe this? Do you believe he is the resurrection and the life? And he's not asking you to affirm some statement of faith. But when he's asking you to believe this, he's asking you, can you trust him? Can you put your hope and your confidence in him in the midst of the pain and the suffering and the sorrow? Do you look to him in the midst of all of that? Do you look to the one who raises the dead and gives life to the brokenhearted? And that is the question that Jesus asked Martha and that is the question he's asking some of you. Do you believe that he is the resurrection and the life? Before we get to the table, I just want to give you a moment and reflect on that question right now. Why don't you just go ahead, close your eyes, or whatever you want to do. If you want to stare up in the ceiling or at me, do whatever you want to do. But just reflect on that question. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? In the midst of your pain, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your sorrow, is your hope and your confidence in Him? Do you believe that He took on your sins and died for you, and that He promises eternal life? Heavenly Father, would sometimes our heart, just like Martha, is full of grief, confusion, and questions when we find ourselves dealing with the reality of a world full of sin, full of pain, full of sorrow, full of death. We lament. And we ask questions. And Lord, I am so grateful that you draw near to us.
that you invite us in to come to you. And you do not remove these things from us. And even though it will be easier for you and for us, that's not the loving thing to do. But in the midst of it, you make yourself known and it causes us to trust you and depend on you. And Lord, you know each and every one in this room. You know their name. You know what they're thinking right now. You know how they're feeling right now. You know their pain and their suffering right now. And Lord, can you, in the midst of their suffering, reveal yourself to be the resurrection and the life? In other words, you will take their sorrow and turn it into joy, and you will give them an eternal life, a life that is secured. And in that moment, Lord, can you help them to trust you and put their confidence in you? Lord, and those who are angry, those who are bitter, those who do not believe that you are good, who are rebelling against you, can you convict them? Can you break them? Can you help them to surrender? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get ready to sit at the table, this table is a reminder that he is the resurrection and the life. It's not just something he does. It's not just something he gives. It's something he is, and he has accomplished it by giving himself. And so when we hand out these elements, they are a reminder of his body given to us, his blood that was shed for us. And when we eat and when we drink, we're reminded of what he did and who he is. But then this table also points us to the future. Kind of like in the call to worship in Isaiah, it talks about this feast of the best cuts of meat, the best of wine. This is simply a shadow of the great wedding banquet that is going to take place. And so what this table does for those who are in Christ, for those who are believers, that in our pain and in our suffering, we eat and we drink knowing that our trust and our confidence is in him, that the life that we have now is eternal life because that life is in him and we can take comfort in the midst of our pain and our sorrow. We know that our pain and our sorrow will end because he will wipe away every tear. All sickness, all disease will be removed because he paid for it on the cross. He paid for the consequences of our sins and he promises a resurrected life that in a sense has begun now and will be fully realized when he returns and so as we distribute these elements i want you to meditate that in the midst of your suffering and the pain and your sorrow he is the resurrection and the life as he has given himself to you eat it remember it drink it be refreshed by it keep your eyes on him but then also look ahead look to the future wedding banquet that's going to take place there will not be cheap wafers and cheap juice, but the best of meat and the best of wine. And we will sit in the presence of the Lord and we will celebrate and say, Hallelujah, the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of this world. And as we distribute these elements, I want to give you a warning. If you are not a believer and you are not in Christ, the best thing for you to do is to abstain from it not because we want to exclude you because we are mean, but because you're not in Christ, you're not sharing in this. And so what we, we are asking you to do is as you abstain from it, maybe this is a time for you to meditate on, on who he is. Maybe surrender your life, repent of your sins, turn to him before you celebrate this. For this is a wonderful opportunity for the people of God that we get to share as we're reminded of who he is and what he's done and the beauty that is waiting for us. 
I'm just so overcome by this truth that in the midst of our suffering, our pain, and our sorrow, he doesn't come to remove it. He does something far greater. He gives us himself. He doesn't save you from it. He saves you through it. Think about that weight. Where he comes to you in your pain and in your sorrow, in your confusion. And he says, this is my body given to you. Eat it in remembrance of me. And in the midst of your sorrow and in your grief, he says, this is my blood that was shed for you. The new covenant that you have in me, drink it in remembrance of me. Take it and drink it. Can you just thank the Lord that he has given himself to us? That his body was given to us, his blood was shed for us. By his stripes and by his death, we've been healed, we've been made new. And he did not remain dead. But he is alive and he is ascended and he is sitting at the right hand of God. And one day he will come back to make everything new. Lord, we thank you for what you have given, what you have done. We thank you for who you are. And Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to rest in you. Help us to look to you. Help us to put our confidence in you. Despite our life circumstances, despite the things that we're going through, in the midst of it, help us to trust you, to grow in our faith. For you are the resurrection and the life. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.